my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back to another episode of Big Money Energy, where we talk to super successful and self-made people to find out exactly how they did it, how they went from nothing to something. I'm Ryan Serhant, and today I'm talking to a pioneer in the world of banking, Marianne Lake. She's the chief executive officer of consumer lending at J.P. Morgan Chase and knows everything there is to know about money. We discuss advice for people looking to pay down debt, the biggest mistakes people make with their money, what Americans take for granted in the banking system, and whether or not it's smart to invest in cryptocurrency. So let's get into it. Welcome to another episode. Today is a very, very special day because I finally got the guest who's in front of me to agree to sit down with me. Her schedule is insane for a lot of different reasons. One, she's an absolute icon. She is a mega businesswoman. She's the former CFO of JP Morgan and now the CEO of Consumer Lending at JP Morgan Chase. Marianne Lake. She's been with JP Morgan for 20 years, working as a senior financial officer in London office and managing the global financial infrastructure and control programs as a part of the corporate finance group. Not to mention, she's a champion of empowering women in finance. Uh, she is the co-founder of the Women on the Move initiative, the largest employee business resource group at the company. And 
As if that wasn't enough, she also sits on the board of directors of the New York City Ballet. She is easily one of the smartest and most influential people in the world. Um, and that is a <laughs> statement. I'm going to leave that there. And has had such a dynamic career. Uh, Chase Card Services alone is the number one credit card issuer in the nation. So I am super excited to be sitting down with her today without further ado. Hi, Marianne. Thanks for doing this. My absolute pleasure to do it. And I'm thrilled to be here. And that was a big intro. So we'll hope to live up to it a bit. Well, there's more. You know what? I, when I wrote the intro, it was like a full page. You know, it's <laughs> tough because you do so many things and you've had such a really, it's such a important and impressive career. So then I'm like trying to figure out with the team, like, ah, okay, we won't go through all this stuff and I'll just, I'll just talk to her. How is it being back in the city today? It's good. I like it to be here. Uh, I miss it, if I'm honest with you. You know, I think we've become incredibly capable virtually and there are some really big benefits to it. And some of those are family related and some of them are, you know, professionally, but I miss it. I miss the combustion, the collaboration, the kind of bumping into people in the corridor. So it's fun to be back. For me, you know, back then it was, you know, we it was very new, scary. Nobody knew what they were doing. New York was the epicenter of this whole thing. And even though, you know, nationally it's still... Um, the pandemic is still an issue. I feel like we kind of have a little bit of an understanding about how to cope with it here. So yeah, it's kind of like anything, right? Like you, you kind of figure out what your flaws are personally, and then you just learn how to amplify your better traits. That's right. It's like, we've all kind of figured out, all right, this virus is a flaw. We got to amplify our better traits. Coping mechanisms all over the place. Yeah. Can you talk to me just for a split second about you know, you see all the time hospitals and, you know, uh, let's say the police force, fire department, they run drills all the time for, you know, terrorist attacks, for anything, anything, anything. You are a very, very large part of the biggest bank in the world. Are there drills for if everyone needs to stay home for seven months? What do you do? How you operate? Yeah. So, I mean, look, Business resiliency and kind of operational resiliency is a, you know, pretty critical part of what we do. And we're systemically important um, all around the world uh, to, you know, the financial infrastructure and all of our clients. And so we do drills all of the time in every possible way. I, to be completely candid, you know, many of the resiliency plans that companies had in all genres of industry involved failing over from one location to another and, you know, level loading around the world. And clearly I would be misleading you to suggest that we had the, you know, one year long global pandemic work from home drill. So, you know, there was a lot of lessons to be learned. And, you know, my hat is off to all the tech and infrastructure folks here, you know, at our company, but quite frankly, you know, everywhere that managed to pull off getting, you know, for us, 250,000, close to 250,000 people working from home in, you know, weeks. And we've just gotten better and better and better. And so, you know, when we look forward now to whatever that looks like, you know, resiliency planning for the future, you know, one of the things that we'll be, you know, conscious of is, you know, this whole dynamic of virtual working, working from home. And, you know, we should never lose this capability now, right? One of the things that we're focused on and everybody will be focused on is what does the, you know, workplace solution look like in the future, ways of working, you know, will people be physical, virtual, hybrid, you know, what will that look like? And so, you know, we're working on it too, and it will be different. I'm pretty sure. What have been the benefits of virtual work in a bank? Is productivity still there? Is the intellectual conversation what's tougher? Like, what do, what do you think the, what do you think is going to come out of this other than just that 
you can save on office space, which everyone talks about. We're more worried about the things that you might lose than necessarily focusing on the benefits, but there are some. I would say, you know, first of all, this has been a deeply human crisis. And so, you know, we are, first and foremost, we employ, um, you know, 250,000 human beings who have families that they care about. And many of people, many people have experienced, you know, sickness and grief. And so the ability to continue to employ those people and allow them to have, you know, a more flexible working dynamic when they're kind of per personal and professional lives collided in this un, like unprecedented, completely unimaginable way, you know, has been a benefit, of course, because, you know, otherwise more people would have had to put their hand up and say, I'm tapping out. I need to go deal with, you know, my kids, my family, my circumstances. And, you know, I think this virtual world has allowed a degree of flexibility that we see when we measure the statistic. We see some people are working later at night and having to take some time off during the day to get stuff done. Um, other people are coming in because we need them to. Branches need to be staffed to help our customers. The traders are in, you know, and other people are working, you know, an extra hour a day that they're not commuting. So we're paranoid about losing productivity. We measure everything we can measure, which is not everything. I think that, you know, our employees have met us more than halfway and are like putting in the extra time when they can. And so we're just, you know, sort of keeping the faith. Now, what we're worried about, other than just productivity, is the cultural drawdown. Because, yeah. you know, you build, you're a relationship guy, yeah. right? You build relationships because you have the human interaction and the human factor and you get the organic opportunities to sort of understand people and what makes them tick. And, you know, that's hard. Yeah. So figuring out how you can mentor people virtually making the time to like how you have hire your, yeah. yeah how you hire people how you train them how you mentor them how you teach them the culture and then how you maintain the culture that's you know what we're focused on and you know so far so good honestly like pleasantly surprised but you know it's the watch item and we're paranoid about that so we're focused on overcompensating for it we've started to have what we're calling like zoom amnesia because if the place doesn't change the screen doesn't change and all that's changing are the little squares and faces you know, I will always remember this meeting sitting down with you. I'll always remember, you know, good times I've had with other people physically because I'm going to remember these ceilings, you know, the whatever. The Zoom always looks the same. And so, you know, it's like, oh, you remember that conversation we had? I'm like, I honestly. <laughs> Vaguely. I, I mean, I, I remember... I remember the sound, uh, but I don't remember exactly that specific Zoom meeting, which is, which is I think, tough for, uh, tough for growth, right? Like it's, everyone's going to become all of these, these task takers and doers. Everyone's going to have their little memo pads because they're not going to be able to remember specific situations because they will have no, no planting in place, yeah. right? There's no hook. Everything is like monochrome. But, you know, look, I will say one other benefit for me and, you know, I, I'm like thrilled about this is if, if you call me on the phone these days, like, you know, cellular, no video. I'm like, what are you doing? Why, why would you do that? Why are we not looking at each other? Like we can't necessarily be in the same room and that's like a given, but now everything I do is face to face. And so I'm weaning myself off email, not completely, but as much as I can. And that's a benefit. So, you know, and I'm, you know, able to zoom you at like nine o'clock at night and it doesn't like ruin my day. Yeah. So there's some good stuff and dinner with my kids. That's yes. Good. Yes. Family time. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. 
My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. How stressful was March 2020? I think that this company, and and like for me, you know, we rise to a good crisis, if I'm honest with you. And, you know, I think that you feel the stress of it uh, kind of a little bit more when you're past the peak. So, you know, I would say kind of June maybe felt to me like, my gosh, this is like, you know, still going. And here we are now in January. I think in March for me, it it was, you know, all about our customers. You know, we had millions of customers that needed our help in a variety of different capacities and they needed it quickly. And when we were all sitting there in March, I don't know about you, but, you know, we didn't know where it was going to end. And, you know, we were talking about unemployment in the, you know, above 20%. And, you know, so if you think about the business that we're in, in terms of, you know, helping people, you know, both with their financial lives in terms of their banking investments, but also, you know, with their lending, um, you know, being able to provide them with quick solutions and, you know, engage with them digitally. That's the other thing. We're a world where, you know, our default is, you know, pick up the phone and call the call center or go into the branch and ask for help. And so we rapidly had to turn around and say, no, 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 
like we've we've got you covered digitally and like rehabituating or habituating people to do things a little differently. So I would say March and April, it was like, you know, execution, 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 you know, meeting every day, like solving problems, like figuring out the plan, like getting after it, like singularly focused on helping customers. And June was more the kind of, whew, and then, you know, you re-up. What were some of the tough decisions that, that you all had to make? Honestly, if you come at something from a customer lens, decisions kind of become a little easier. But for us, it was, you know, that the, the government obviously has done a huge amount to help all Americans, at least to try to. And, you know, we wanted to, you know, step up and do our part. And so clearly, as you know, the CARES Act provided, you know, certain protections and payment relief for only parts of the, the mortgage industry. And, you know, I run not just a government lending business, but also a proprietary business and also a credit card business and auto and auto lending business. And we have, you know, lending to small businesses. And so, you know, we made the decision that we were going to provide, you know, consistent relief across all asset classes from March the 27th. We had it all built and up and running digitally for everyone and not sort of be led necessarily by just what's required, but just, you know, full stop, everybody who needs help can get 90 days of relief, no questions asked um, across all asset classes to buy time, you know, for everybody to figure out where this was going. And I wouldn't say it was a hard decision, but it was important to make the decision do it, and just do it. Yeah. I will say, you know, in the conversations that I have with salespeople, buyers, sellers around the country in 2020, Chase was one of those companies where like everyone felt safe. Like that feeling, actually, I think in hindsight, you guys will see this in consumer growth, probably. People always go to what they think is safe because, you know, they hear it through rumor or they got them through that pandemic. I know with kind of the, the you know, the, the paycheck protection program, Chase was right on top of it and was answering emails, everything quickly, whereas other banks were having a really, really hard time, either technically or logistically playing catch up. But th that program ran through you? No, it didn't. But, you know, I'm part of the team that, that did it. And I have a colleague of mine who's like an extraordinary, uh, you know, partner who spent large portions of her 2020 year figuring out the PPP program and is now, you know, doing it again round two and there will be, you know, around three. And listen, we, moments of truth are important. There, you know, there are like customer experience is important all the time, but it's never more important than when there's a moment of truth for someone, regardless of what that is. That's what people remember. You know, you had my back when I needed your help. And, you know, did we do everything right? Uh, you know, no. And did, you know, will every customer be, you know, will be equally happy? I'm sure not. But we like definitely tried. And it is, you know, our intention to like meet our customers in those moments of truth. So um, PPP was, you know, a really important program. It wasn't straightforward. It still isn't. Um, but, you know, we did our best. Are you... Um you know, motivated because there are so many people looking for home loans right now and buying cars and spending money? Or is there a worry in the back of your mind as someone who runs the entire lending business that these interest rates are just too low? Where does inflation go? What, is, what are the next couple of years going to look like? These valuations, forget New York City, valuations uh, on real estate around the country are not making a whole lot of sense like where we go from here is this do you think it's a kind of roaring 20s into another crisis or do you think we are set up as much smarter and more capable and so i i think for me i think this is a very different situation than the great you know 
recession that we had in the last, you know, 10 years. And I can speak for us, but I think it's true, you know, quite broadly that like our business is very different today than it was before. And, you know, we've de-risked. And so, and, and this isn't a consumer led crisis either. So consumer balance sheets are stronger. I mean, that's not to say, obviously, that at the margin, there are not, uh, you know, a lot of people who are and will struggle and we should have like significant empathy and like be there to help folks. But, you know, it, it is the case that, you know, in that kind of ability and willingness to pay spectrum, you know, I think that the consumer just generally is in you know, a decent spot. And so with interest rates where they are and, you know, and the appetite, as you talked about for home purchases in record purchase volumes um, in this region, we've doubled our you know, mortgage origination year over year. You know, I do think the next year or two has a long way to run. And, you know, we pulled back a little bit on risk, of course, you know, so we, we are always going to make sure that when we do loans, we expect our customers to be able to and willing to pay them. Um, so I don't actually see that this is going to be something where we're going to get through the next couple of years and then see, you know, a significant consumer stress. But, you know, we prepare for the worst always. What advice do you give to anyone who's listening who might have, you know, uh, let's say either lower credit or they've got a student loan that they need to pay down so it makes things hard and this idea of the American dream of home ownership just seems like it's getting further and further and further away from their grasp. Is it just, listen, go through the motions, you got to make money, you got you to build up, these are the protocols, you know, big banks need to calculate risk. There, we, we deal with a lot of people as well, um, you know, first time home buyers who have said to us, well, listen, I, Ryan, I, I can't even, I have some money, but I've got this loan to pay down. I got this to handle. I got this. I, I don't think I'll ever be able to buy a home or afford it. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, there are some things you can control and then there are obviously things that you can't. And so, you know, as an individual, you can control like your credit education, your financial health, doing what you can do to make sure that you're positioning yourself the best way you can for someone who's going to, you know, potentially assess you, you know, for, you know, credit worthiness in the future. And so, you know, everywhere that you look, you can find your credit score, you can find tips on how to improve it um, and just maintain good financial discipline and health in what you do do, pay your bills on time and don't overreach. And, and, and so for me, if you kind of take those disciplines, um, you know, into account, and then for, I would also say for us, we, we also build relationships. So it's not to say that we don't want to make money on a transaction. But for me, if you're a customer of Chase, you have had your financial situation with us. We know your inflows. We know your outflows. We know what you have. We're more inclined to be able to lend to you because we see risk separation. We see that the performance of our own customers is better. So I would say, you know, consolidate your financial situation with a partner you trust, pay attention to your financial discipline and your own financial health, do what you can to improve your situation. And then there's an element of things you can't control. So, you know, patience is also a virtue. And then if you can't, you know, reach the the goals of being able to, you know, own a home, then maybe there's other ways you can invest and continue to grow your wealth. I mean, obviously the American dream is that you have, you know, home ownership and that it's able to sort of create generational wealth for you. And, and that's something that everyone should aspire to. But, you know, any wealth creation would be helpful. What was your connection to money growing up and as a kid? Do you remember? So my dad, he was a electronic engineer. So he wasn't like this super ambitious guy, incredibly smart. Um, you know, had a good job. We were sort of very happy and, you know, financially healthy, but we didn't, we weren't like wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. I do have a recollection and it's like not particularly clear, but I do have a recollection of when I was, you know, old enough to know and young enough not to, you know, be worried about it of interest rates in the UK 
like hitting double digits and there being, you know, a big negative equity wave and it being an actual thing that was, you know, worrying for my family. So I have that recollection. And, but other than that, you know, it, it wasn't really something that I paid huge amounts of attention to. We didn't have um, any real challenges. We didn't have, you know, significant excess either. And I would say one sort of formative financial thing for me was when I was at college and, you know, I worked a job as well as being at college and, you know, what um, was that job? I was a barmaid, <laughs> I nice. pulled, pulled pints. Um, so yeah, it's fun. It's social. Why not? But I did that as well as like being at college and, and I don't even really know or have a clear appreciation of how I did it, but I ran up some debts, not like huge, but like enough that I couldn't, you know, get just out like on of it. credit cards and stuff. No, not on credit cards, but like, you know, just not, not so significant that it would, you know, be a thing. But I remember being like really embarrassed and just like making myself the promise that that's not happening again. And so, you know, planning is a big part of what I do. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. As someone who's advised um, and has consulted and is now a part of a very, very large bank, what, what's the biggest money advice that you've either given or someone's given to you that that you think everyone who's listening could take away from? So I think two things. One is like, uh, you know, a, a little bit more super tactical, but I think probably the most important thing. And then one maybe a bit more strategic. You need to have some liquidity. You know, stuff happens and you can't control everything clearly, right? And, you know, we have in this company, we have the JP Morgan Chase Institute that does a lot of um, kind of research and did some research on, you know, um, savings and, you know, what you need to be able to weather, you know, a contemporaneous or a simultaneous, you know, decrease in income with a spike in expenses. So think you lose your job or your hours are curtailed and you have a medical expense. And, you know, mostly, you know, the rule of thumb is six weeks of like, you know, take home pay would be a good liquidity buffer to try and help make you resilient through those kinds of normal income volatility stresses. And, you know, two thirds of people in this country don't have that. And, you know, so that's one of the reasons why national savings is such a priority. And I do the same thing. I mean, it looks different for me, maybe. But, you know, I, you know, take a look at what I have that I need to, you know, lay out in terms of, you know, operating expense for, my life and my family. And I make sure that that is at least for some period of time, it's liquid and that I have access to it. Um, and I just think that discipline and it's not always possible and everybody's situation is different, but I think that like having that, um, when you can is, is super important and, you know, any kind of goals-based savings, any kind of ability to try and lean into that, I think would be, um, you know, great advice and has been for me. The other thing is like, think long-term about your financial situation, if you can, like if you can get invested again, whether it's in investments, whether it's in, you know, your first home, however that is, even if it's in a small amount and stay invested through cycles and not get sort of overexcited with, you know, the day-to-day -day markets, like stay invested, have a long-term view. Um, generally speaking for me, that's, you know, that's my philosophy. 
what's the biggest mistake though that you think people make with money you know from your position where you sit which you're the one like is there is there something you, you know where a one third of americans ah, i wish wish people could just learn to stop doing that thing and they'd be so much better off. Is it just savings probably? I don't spend much time judging other people because, um, you know, I think everything is relative to your situation. So, you know, sometimes what looks like a mistake is by necessity. I do think it is literally at its core, just like financial discipline. So, you know, don't overreach and pay your bills on time. You know, you can control, I mean, not everybody can control it all of the time. And if you lose your job and you haven't got the funds, it, you know, you know, circumstances can, you know, can conspire against you, of course. But if you have the capacity, don't be sloppy. Um, and, you know, and then yes, savings. So to me, it would be if you have the capacity, if you're not in a difficult situation, don't be lax, don't be sloppy, don't lose track of things, be on top of it, like maintain the discipline that you would over your health or whatever else it is. What do you think Americans take for granted? with our banking system. You see Venezuela, for example, or other countries, and you know, Americans like to complain a lot, right? Nothing's ever good enough. You know, it, you know, the CARES Act, it's only, I can't remember, what was it? Trillions of dollars, you know, but it was only trillions. How come you can't do this? How come we can't do that? And I feel like if people just understood what it was like in other parts of the world, they'd really come to appreciate a, a lot in the United States, but specifically the U.S. banking system. Yeah, I mean, I look, I don't think that, you know, our customers take a lot for granted. I think they have high expectations and I think they should, they have the right to have high expectations of the, you know, U.S. banking system. Um, but I suppose, of course, that, you know, we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, we have a lot of other, you know, regulatory standards and, you know, the FDIC insurance. So I think there's a lot of protections, uh, you know, for for US consumers in terms of the, you know, where they put their money in the banking relationships and how, you know, regulated banks should be um, and the standards we should be held to when we're dealing with other people's, you know, money and livelihoods and things like that. Um, and so I think that there are high expectations and that's like as it should be, honestly, and we have to earn the right to continue to, you know, deserve that every day. And that's, you know, that's healthy. So I don't know if it's unrealistic, but I do think we are blessed over here. Of course we have, you know, and, you know, Jamie always says it, the deepest, most liquid financial markets in the world. And, you know, our, our you know, Americans have access to, you know, I think differently situated, you know, protections. What's a misconception that people have of your job? Well, I don't know if it's a misconception. I mean, I, I read a lot of customer complaints I think it's incredibly important to do it. Really? Yes. Listen to a lot of phone calls, um, customer phone Really? All those recorded calls every time they say yes. this call is being recorded for- Yes. Really? Well, well not all of them. I listen- oh, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, so I get uh, complaints directly to me. We, you know, we also go through them often, um, listen to the calls. I think it's not a misconception of my job. Obviously, we're- we're a very large financial institution, lots and lots of transactions. Um, and, you know, that, that I'm sort of personally involved in deciding each and every one of those is, is obviously not realistic. But I do try to listen to the calls, the complaints and like really, you know, dig into what we could do differently. So I don't know if it's a misconception, but uh, we do spend as much time and I do spend, you know, a decent amount of time, like really getting into the nitty gritty of the experience because, you know, it's not always where it should be and we need to do better. Do you remember when you bought your first home? I definitely remember when I bought my first home. I'm oh. a like real estate geek. You know that, right? Yes, yes, yes. Where was it? 
It was in Wimbledon in London in uh, a mansion block. So like purpose-built mansion flats, 100 years old, two and a half bedrooms. Yeah. Uh, it was When I bought it, the real estate market in the UK was like fully booming. So like quite literally between starting to look for a place and like being able to buy a place, I went from being able to afford a small like terraced house to an apartment, um, 100% loan to value IO when in the days when that was a thing. Really? That was your loan? Uh-huh. Wow. Like super brave. That's the bravest I've been. Um, <laughs> but then I like tightened my belt. I didn't go out. I painted every single, it'd be your absolute nightmare. I painted every single room a different color. Oh my goodness. I swear to God. How long did I have it? Um, I had that from, so I had that for maybe two, two and a half years. And I was fortunate that in that two and a half years, the UK real estate market was still doing quite well. So liquidated, bought up, not a hundred percent loan to value. You'd be delighted to know. Um, <laughs> and I still have that house, by the way. That's really? the house I bought. Yeah. I still have that one. Wow. Mm -hmm. You keep it rented my, or family lives there? My family. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Why do you think you like real estate so much? I'm not great at investing in real estate, just so that we're clear, um, because I'm emotional about it. And I think that's like not a really particularly, um, you know, good trait. That's um, okay. I'm, I actually, I appreciate that. I guess I just enjoy the the process as much as I enjoy the, you know, outcome of it. So, you know, for me, I spend a lot of time like getting to know the neighborhoods I'm in. So right now, you know, I'm not in the city at the moment and I spend a lot of time just looking at everything that's for sale around the area so I know the market. And there's good deals. It's just, yeah. It's not necessarily about the deal. It's more about the like awareness and having the context and the insights and being a amateur of what you are. <laughs> <laughs> a deep, deep amateur. No. What would you say to women entering the workplace now? And can you tell me a little bit about what you do for women on the move and what that initiative is all about? So women on the move started being quite internally focused and started off working at like at Draper Morgan Chase where a few of us in, you know, some senior positions in the company kind of said, well, we should like get together and listen to what the experience is like if you are a woman working in this company, but maybe you're not at the level we're at or in the business we're in or even in New York and just really understand, you know, what the experience is like and understand at a really practical level whether we as leaders could actually, you know, champion some change and make this a great place to work. We did that for, you know, a, a couple, three years and then decided that actually, you know, we ought to turn not just to be internally but externally focused and look at, you know, women in corporate America, but also our clients and, you know, small business, women entrepreneurs and other parts of our client base and, you know, try and see whether through our actual businesses, we could, um, you know, promote more women run businesses, try and, you know, provide capital or, you know, get access to capital for, uh, you know, female entrepreneurs and things that are just a little bit harder. We have now internally focused a lot of events that we do where we do go out and go on the road and listen to our employees and hear like what's working and what's not working and how we could change things and as i think you said at the beginning the sort of women's group in the company is the biggest resource group we have and there's tens of thousands of women and men by the way who participate in that um many of our women are mentored by great men who have you know wives and daughters and want women to be successful um, and then obviously we're, you know, structuring our businesses to also make sure that we're, you know, promoting success for minority and women owned businesses and communities. What do you think about when people say you're a trailblazer in the industry? Do you agree with them? Do you feel like that's 
a lot of weight on your shoulders. I mean, you kind of have to agree. I don't really think about it so very much, except for I will tell you that um, when I became the CFO of the company um, and, you know, people would start asking me, you know, my thinking, my thoughts about, you know, women in the workforce and women in corporate America. And and I realized I, you know, had a responsibility to actually have a point of view and to lean in and really, you know, take some responsibility for, you know, helping others. But I don't, you know, think so very much about myself. And, you know, I do this job because I love it in this company because I love it, um, you know, with a team that I think is extraordinary and nothing that any of us do is like just us. The best leaders are people who have, you know, teams of people working for them that are more talented than they are and, you know, bring, you know, talent and culture along. And so I really think it's got precious little to do with me, um, but I'm happy to be a part of it. What would you say is... I don't want to say number one, but why do you think you've been successful other than just I work really hard and you're smart and like math, you know, there's, there's gotta be more to it than that. You know, you are resilient, right? Persistent. I will say that there are two things that, um, that about me that I think are the most true of anything. And, uh, and again, I don't know that I'm the only person that's ever said this, but it is definitely true of me. And there is no one that will be more prepared than me. And there will no, there is no one that will ever outwork me. And, you know, so I think those are like reasonably, um, sort of good core competencies is to like work hard, be prepared, um, and, you know, know your stuff and get stuff done. Um, I think that, you know, people become people have trust and confidence in people who know what they're doing and get stuff done who actually have a clear appreciation of what they don't know know when to ask for help like don't consider that there are boundaries to their job that are willing to like put their hand up and lean into things that haven't you know got very much to do with them so who are great partners and then i wouldn't underestimate the importance of being nice to be around Yeah, you know, I I will. I know it's you should never overuse it, but the number of times that I've said to people like it is a genuine pleasure to have you on the team, and that's not nothing, right? That is like pretty significant. People like to be with people where they have trust and confidence in them because they know that if they need help, they're going to ask for it. Um, If they can't do what you want them to do, they're going to like tell you that they are going to work really hard and that they're going to do it with a smile on their face and a good attitude and be a great partner. Thank you so much for doing this and Thank you. coming into the city amongst the craziness. This I do come cool. in. It's not just for you, but it was absolutely. Well, I'm going to say it's just for of me course. because that makes me feel Today better. Today it was for you. Yeah, good. Great. Um, Marianne, you're the best. Thank you so much. You too. And we will talk soon. Thank you. If you're ready to take action today based on Marianne Lake's entire blueprint for how she got to where she is, go to bigmoneyenergy.com slash podcast to download an action plan that I put together for you as well as the show notes. That's bigmoneyenergy.com slash podcast. Find more podcasts like Big Money Energy on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Big Money Energy is hosted by me, Ryan Serhant. It's produced by Mike Coscarelli and Joe Laresca and executive produced by Lindsay Hoffman. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. 
When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.